Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Many of us have been raised with the idea that strength means pushing your own limits in order to achieve your goals. But what if there was another way? A way that honored your needs while also cultivating strength? In this conversation, author and therapist Andi Kolber walks us through a fresh vision of strength as we discuss her book, Strong Like Water. This is Andi's third time on the podcast, and I'm so glad she is back with us. Andi's deep faith informs her understanding of strength, and the tools she suggests for growth are very relevant for anyone facing hard things while also desiring to stay grounded in God's love. Our conversation takes a deep dive into psychology as Andi describes three types of strength and their roles in the context of healing from trauma. We touch on the concept of comparative suffering, and we also discuss the way our nervous systems affect our bodily responses. Andi generously shares a few strategies to use as compassionate resources, the term she uses for those practical tools that help us care for our emotional needs. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, I've included a bonus from our conversation in which Andi talks with us about how to distinguish between self-care behaviors and numbing behaviors in ourselves. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Andi Kolber is a licensed professional counselor, writer, and speaker in Castle Rock, Colorado. She specializes in trauma and body-centered therapies and is passionate about the integration of faith and psychology. As a survivor of trauma, Andi brings hard-won knowledge around the work of change, the power of redemption, and the beauty of experiencing God with us in our pain. Andi's previous book, Try Softer, was featured on our podcast in January of 2020. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I'm really excited to talk with you about your book, which is entitled Strong Like Water, Finding the Freedom, Safety, and Compassion to Move Through Hard Things and Experience True Flourishing. And we talked previously about your first book, Try Softer. And I would love to hear what inspired you to write Strong Like Water. And especially, you know, both books are based in your work on trauma and healing. And I'd love for you to talk about the ways that they differ and complement each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in terms of the piece around um, what inspired me, I think, you know, I think that especially in writing Try Softer, um, I noticed like a res- like for some folks, a resistance mm-hmm. around 
some of those concepts, which I think is honestly pretty normal, right? Like a particularly like in our culture, um, I think often for folks who do identify as trauma survivors, maybe even for folks who don't, the idea of like, tri- like for example, trisofter is sort of like, I think it can confuse people. It's sort of like, wait, how do you get anything done? And the other thing I noticed is a sense that people, not everyone, but it almost like this feeling of like, but isn't it weak? Mm-hmm. Isn't it um, just giving up? Isn't it? And so what I what I it connected for me is this sense that I have noticed. I've been a therapist for, gosh, almost sixteen years, um, and I've noticed this sense where, for a lot of people, some of the resistance to healing in general is that there's this feeling of like, well, isn't that weak? Mm-hmm. Isn't it weak to feel? Isn't it weak to um, get support? Isn't it actually almost like, um, I don't know, like doing the opposite of what you think you're supposed to do if you are, quote, you know, strong. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is, I love paradoxes. Like I, I exist often in paradoxes. I think about those things a lot. And so I think that's where this phrase strong like water started to, I started to chew on this concept that I think it's so fascinating to me that actually the things that we think will kind of make us weak or discredit us, or in some way, like now I no longer am the one who pulls myself up by my bootstraps sort of thing. Actually, particularly from a neurobiological standpoint is the things is the pathway Mm -hmm. to experiencing what I would call wholeness, integration, Mm -hmm. um, trauma resolution, uh, interconnectedness, shalom. I mean, that's, that's the path. So, so strong like water, I think for me is, was, is almost been the articulation of my own wrestling with I have always felt ambivalent about strength. Mm-hmm. I have often felt like I, I in my own journey have had to be quote unquote, the strong one, the person who doesn't get to say, Hey, I'm actually not okay. Or actually I have needs um, because I have either felt like there wasn't enough support available. Others maybe needed, I felt like needed it more Um It maybe didn't feel safe. It felt too big. It didn't feel accessible. And so the wrestling there is, so what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. If in your life, which I think in some way, all of us have to be, I think every single person to some extent probably has, has had to sort of act sort of like, I call it survival strength. They've had to live in a way where it's like, yeah, I did that thing and it got me what I needed. I didn't love it. (laughs) It was really hard, you know? And, and so I think there's that question of like, how do we frame that? How do we talk about that? And, and how does that ultimately get woven into the story of who we are in a way that is healing and transformational? Um, you describe in the book three separate kinds of strength. It's kind of um, like a, a pathway. And you talk about situational strength, transitional strength, and integrated strength. I love this um, this description. And I would love for you to talk about these different types of strength and how we use them. 
Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. So I imagine these type, these three types of strength on what I call the flow of strength and on that flow, you know, again, that first one situational strength is, um, what I would describe as, as survival strength, Mm -hmm. as what we access or tap into when our body perceives, whether it's completely accurate or not, that this is um, a dangerous, potentially life-threatening situation. Now, I'd like to give some caveats to that yeah. because when people hear that, they're like, well, yeah, of course, if you're in, you know, maybe you think of like, if you're in a car accident, like maybe if you're in war, you know, people have a very often narrow perspective of what that, what classifies as um, qualifying in that category. And what I would just say is that when we are looking at it through the lens of the body, um, perception matters. And so let's say, for example, you're a kiddo and you have a parent who often shames at you or like shames you or makes you feel as though um, if you aren't exactly perfect, like you will sort of lose the love. Mm-hmm. of of the person or one of the people that you literally rely on for things like shelter and food and our most basic needs. If we look at that in context, in the context of a body of a, of a little person and what's happening, um, experiences like that can feel life or death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Experiences like that also, when not followed by repair, mm-hmm. can get stuck in the bodies in the minds, in the nervous systems of folks. And those become touch points that let's say in this flow of strength concept, um, you have a boss who reminds you a lot of your dad and the way that they talk to you, even though you're a 35 year old person makes you feel like you're six and you begin to act in ways that you're a little bit puzzled. Like, why am I so hypervigilant? Why can I, my why is my heart beating out of my chest? Why do I feel like almost like this is life or death? Mm-hmm. This is an example, just a very, you know, just a potential way. Something like survival strength might show up and it almost feels, you know, it, it we get like a little bit like, wait, this doesn't make sense. But if you look at it in the context of your experience and some of those types of things, that's how... Like that's an example of how that might show up. And with that said, we also have survival strength for things like literally anything that causes our body to feel like we need to have an immediate um, instantaneous sub like subconscious reaction, like, like to the threat. So if you're trying to cross the street and you see a car coming, you might not have a conscious thought your body is going to react. Mm-hmm. So I I share both of those examples because they both can be related to situational strength, but the roots of them, the origins of them can look a little bit different. Yeah. Can I ask you a question before you talk about transitional strength? Because I want to understand, I mean, one of the things that I hear people talk about sometimes is, I guess you call it comparative suffering that, Mm. you know, um, you know, you may have had a trauma in which you know, you didn't feel loved by a parent, but, and that's affecting you, but 
when you compare it to somebody who has grown up in a war-torn, you know, country or something like that, that it feels like you shouldn't, you, you should not have, you, that it's an indulgence to um, acknowledge that. So what do you say to people who get stuck on that point? Yeah. Well, I think comparative suffering is an important idea to, un- to at least bring up because I certainly think that we want to acknowledge like someone who's experiencing a war or being raised in a war-torn country. Like we want to acknowledge that the significance of the possibility of the trauma that they are experiencing. And I say it that way because in anything that happens, it's always about repair, Mm. meaning something that has the potential to be disturbing isn't guaranteed to be disturbing. In many ways, it's about what happens next. Mm. Now, I say that not to in any way minimize the, the actual experience, but for example, like in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, if I, and I, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but essentially there's a description of kiddos raised um, in exactly what you're saying. However, what was observed about kiddos who had a secure attachment with their parent is that they were much less likely to be traumatized from what they did experience. Now, if we look at that through the lens of what we're saying, we're saying everyone is affected by pain. The question is, is what kind of support and resources do, do folks have potentially access to, including for ki- like kiddos and, you know, like it might be parents or caregivers and for adults, it might be your community or, you know, your family. Um, those are the resources that have the potential to help mitigate, hmm. not that it erases. And it doesn't mean that our body isn't going to have to, pr- to process. We still will have to do that. But I think this is really important. And most people don't even know this is even a thing. (laughs) They just assume, they assume if you've had X, you know, one plus one always equals two. And I would say in the trauma world, it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. It's always more about, yes, this thing happened and almost like what happened during and after that potentially helps to mitigate the harm. Because that is a, a better predictor of how people will navigate and, and experience in their actual bodies what comes next. So, so back to your original question about comparative suffering, what I would just say is there is so much nuance here mm. that the thing that makes me sad is that folks who on a, just a real functional level, let's say you have had lots of what might be called little T trauma, where you've had lots of ruptures, lots of pain, and that pain um, has not been processed. It, it does come up frequently, but let's say you are a person who's learned, I can't listen to my body because other people have it worse. And you've learned that you shouldn't complain and, and really you, sh- you don't even deserve to feel because other people have it worse from just a very holistic perspective. What I would say is what happens is, is that when we don't have the safety in our body to feel our own feelings, it actually makes us less capable 
of coming alongside and really being with the pain of others in our lives. So, so when we talk about being with someone who has been, was raised in a war-torn country, our capacity is diminished Mm. when we have not done our own work. Mm. So we always want to be mindful that it's like, certainly if, if that is somebody else's story, you know, I'm not going to advocate for someone being like, well, yeah, you know what happened when I was, you know, this age. I mean, because that's also not helpful, Mm -hmm. but in spaces that it's appropriate as we do our own work, first of all, we are worthy of that work. We are, we are worthy to be listened to and attuned to that. That is a valid and necessary human need. And the beauty of that is that it actually makes us able to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The next part of the flow is transitional and then integrated, right? Can you talk about right. those a yes. little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the things to understand about this as we're going into transitional strength is that um, in the book, one of the things I talk about is that it's, it's the mechanism of compassionate resourcing, mm-hmm. which just to unpack that a little bit, what I mean when I say that is that um, Dr. Ariel Schwartz defines resourcing um, as anything that communicates safety to our body in the present. So when we are in situational strength, part of what this framework is saying is that it is the safety, it's the resourcing that is doing the work to move us to the transitional strength. Um, On a neurobiological level, what that means is that our body is taking in cues of safety. And that internalization Mm -hmm. of the safety is the thing that part of what's happening in transitional strength is that our prefrontal cortex, which is the top of our brain, um, it begins to come back online. Because when we've been in survival strength, that is unavailable to us. Um, And as that comes back online, part of what's happening is that we can begin to, we can begin to sort of like think about thinking, meaning rather than whereas situational strength can feel really myopic, like it's like one track, this is it. Like I'm a hammer, everything's a nail. Like there's only, that's often how it feels in survival in, um, in that situational strength. As we move into transitional strength, we begin to have access to parts of our brain that can help us be like, I'm noticing that when I am around my boss, going back to that first example, um, I am noticing that I start to feel like really small and like maybe I want to run away or something. Let's just take that as an example. What's different about this is that you are noticing something versus being like, this is like, this is just what's happening. Like this is like, it changes our perspective a little bit. Now there's some, there's a lot of nuance to this middle strength, but here's why that matters. It matters because this is the space in which we really begin to have some choice about what we do with what's happening in our bodies. And I think in many ways, it's like, 
this is so much, you know, folks who've been on a healing journey, oftentimes, you know, they experience this as they're starting to go to therapy or they notice this as like people are beginning to mirror back to them. Like what they, what happened to them was real and it's okay to have these feelings. Like there's this sense of like you, you see the issue itself, but you also almost like can stand a little bit next to the issue mm-hmm. and say like, I am me <laughs> and this thing happened. And so as we do this, this, a lot of what I say is that this is sort of where the magic begins to happen because now we can begin to say, okay, well, what else would I need then? If, uh, you know, for example, if my boss, if this situation with my boss is bringing this up for me, like what, like, are there some boundaries I need to set? Do I potentially need to go to HR? Um, do I need to have other people in the room with me when this person comes into the room to make sure that I can sort of stay with myself? Like this is where we have more capacity to get creative. Mm-hmm. And as our body begins to, inter- again, internalize the safety through compassionate resourcing, Um, our body has the innate capacity to move towards that integrated strength. Mm -hmm. And that integrated strength is very, it's not a finish line, but it's more like our body, you know, that first event that brought up the situational strength, ultimately what's happening is that it's moved all the way through. It has been, it is being metabolized in our body so that rather this thing that has maybe felt like life or death or like incredibly activating begins to be able to be processed in a way that our body um, kind of files the memory away like a normal memory. We have the capacity to look at it and like, like learn from it, like to have insight about it. Um, If there's anything we want to bring with us about what happened, like that's available to us, but it's available to us in a way that is not traumatic or disturbing. And this is really important, I think, because I find that there are a lot of people who've been through really challenging, hard things, and they can feel like either they're like in the trauma and they're like, I'm in my situational strength and I'm like, go harder, go home and nothing else matters. Or like, I just have to pack it all in and like never speak up again and just be quiet and be in a room, right? Like it can feel really binary, Mm -hmm. but, but this work is so much more about as we heal, it's more about a fullness of who we are. Um, It's almost like it's a, it's a, it's a homecoming to ourselves um, in a way that feels like the most supportive that it could be. Yeah. One of the things that um, I find so interesting about your writing is, especially as you're talking about the nervous systems and our sense of safety, is you talk about the body. You're always bringing us back to the body. How does your body feel? What are you feeling? And That is not instinctive for me. I feel like I'm learning that. Um, But I would love for you to talk about, you know, what what kind of information we can learn from our bodily responses and how we can use our body as a diagnostic tool kind of, or or help to to sort through our sense of safety using our body. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think what you're saying is 
honestly really common in terms of, I think a lot of folks, I mean, we're really not taught to listen to our bodies. If anything, we're taught to deny mm-hmm. um, the information of our body. And I can think of that in so many different settings, whether that's sports, church, academia, um, I mean, you name it. And, and most places will tell you to, in some way, deny your body. And I think what I love about this work in many ways is inviting folks to become like embodied. Um, and with that said, um, one of the things I, I always talk about, and I probably talked about it when I was on the show in the past, but I always talk about the window of tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why is because this helps us have a little bit of a, a map and it ties in really well with the flow of strength, but it, in general, you know, the window of tolerance, um, is that range of arousal in which we can feel our feelings when we can have an experience, when we can, um, you know, remember something and we can tolerate it. Now, part of what's important about that part of tolerating it is not just like a cognitive thought. It's an embodied experience. So a lot of people, this is where it's like, it can be a little bit like, wait, what does that almost even mean? <laughs> like, especially if you've not had a lot of experience with this. And what I would just say, I want to describe the other elements of the window of tolerance, because it might help us have more clues. Mm-hmm. Um, when our body perceives that something is threatening, we will go up into usually our sympathetic nervous system. So that'll be fight, flight, sometimes fawn, but generally there's like a mobilization. There's a sense of like, I need to do something Mm -hmm. when that doesn't feel like it resolves the threat. Our body will go down into the lower side of the window, which is more defined by, um, a dissociative experience, which can really range. It can range from just feeling like suddenly really tired, Um, It can, you can feel a little bit numb. You might feel depressed Um, all the way to if the threat feels big enough where we could potentially lose consciousness. Um, So there's a really big range. Now, what's important to understand about the window is that our body is shifting states subconsciously without our permission. Like it's not a conscious, like now I want to do this instead our body through something called neuroception, which was coined by Dr. Stephen Porges, is constantly scanning for either safety or threat. Hmm. And when, like, for example, if you are a person with a history of unresolved trauma, your body at times might uh, inaccurately assess something that may in some ways actually be safe. Um, because it reminds your body of something that has been experienced as unsafe in the past. It will pick up that cue, even so much as a facial expression, um, a sensory, you know, like it could be a smell, it could be, I mean, there are a lot of different things because our bodies are brilliant at keeping us safe. And so our body is taking in all this information and based off of the information is where we will go on the window. Like meaning if we'll be in the window versus if we'll go into sympathetic or, you know, our parasympathetic. So when we think about this whole concept of strength, 
and this idea that it's safety that moves us along the flow. I mean, there's a very reciprocal relationship with this window of tolerance because it is, it is safety that brings us back to the window. Mm. So if our body is picking up some threat and that threat could look a lot of different ways. I mean, it could, there's so many different ways that could present itself, but if there's that threat, but there's enough safety. Mm -hmm. So it could be that there's another person in the room that we trust. It could be the ability to connect with, yeah, that happened, but I am an adult now and I have a lot more choices now. It could be things like, okay, there's the exit. And I know that if I need to go, that I, I will go like, there are so many ways that we, that we can pick up those cues of safety. Um, but it's, it's when we are in that window that we are most tolerably embodied. Like mm-hmm. we are embodied in a way that feels closest to like when people feel like when they talk about feeling good in their body, like mm-hmm. an aliveness an openness, a, um, you know, you think of things like people are like, oh, it was, there was an energy. There was like, it was sparkly. Like we had, all, you know, we had this time and it was just, it was so beautiful. Those folks are describing that experience of really being in that window and co-regulating mm-hmm. probably with others. And when our body begins to pick up cues again, like all of a sudden, you know, my throat felt like it was starting to close up or my, my heart is racing, or I'm noticing that I'm clenching my hands or my neck went really tight. Again, these are cues from our body that, um, again, that neuroception mm-hmm. is telling our body, oh, we are inching towards threat. We are, I'm picking things up that are telling me, and I can tell often primarily first through somatic cues that my body might be inching out of that window of tolerance. So you talk a lot about compassionate resourcing. It's really the whole second half of your book. You have practical ideas. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more about just a couple, what, what are a couple of these tools? What can people what can people use or, or do to bring up that, that bring, bring us into the window of tolerance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think what you've described um, is, is a great description of, you know, it's often we, we have to first be able to even notice mm-hmm. what's happening in our body, which for many folks um, takes some time. Yeah. Like not everyone can tune right into their bodies, partly because maybe part of the way that they've survived is actually by disconnecting mm-hmm. to their bodies. And I just want to name that because at first that can be kind of frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> if you are a listener who's like, I have no idea. I mean, I work with folks in counseling where, you know, we are learning for the first time to notice what an emotion feels like in your mm-hmm. body. And if that's you, that's okay. Like our bodies, just like they can get shaped around things like disconnection, we can um, actually, our bodies can also reshape to rebuild the neural pathways that allow us to sort of tune in. It's called interoception. Mm-hmm. Um, and that when that has um, sort of not been, you know, 
properly supported for lots of reasons, it can be rebuilt. Um, so, but in many ways, that is one of the first things that we are trying to do is even just notice and listen um, that we, that something is even happening in us. Um, and sometimes, especially for folks early on, we may not know that anything's wrong until we are deeply outside of our window. Mm. <laughs> like, like there might've been like six or seven cues, but because you've never learned to know what to do with that information, you're like, oh, I was so far gone and I didn't even like know it. And that's actually really common for folks. So what I want to just say in terms of the compassionate resourcing is that I always start with really basic things. And that's because I don't assume that people are ready for step 10 mm -hmm. when there are so many people who are still on step one. And that's okay. There's lots of on-ramps. But I, so one of the things I just always talk about are, are some basic um, some basic skills that are still compassionate resources, but often at the beginning, um, you know, some folks may be more familiar with this than others. But um, one, for example, is grounding. And grounding is using our five senses to bring us back into the immediate present. Um, I, I think this is one of, it's such an accessible resource. So I, I almost always mention it mm -hmm. because part of what we can do is that, um, it's a great thing to be able to practice whether you've ever been in therapy, whether you're, you know, but if you are starting to feel like, yeah, maybe, you know, this, this person who's described, you know, going out of your window, that might be, that might be starting to happen. Um, doing things like if at all possible, I like to recommend to get outside mm -hmm. because there's so much good sensory information for our body outside. Um, so naming things that we can see, um, picking, picking up a rock, picking up, you know, touching the grass, smelling, you know, as it's beginning to be spring, smelling flowers, noticing from a sensory perspective, what's going on. Um, in doing this, the hope is, is that we just begin like you might not be like, oh yeah, I feel amazing, but we're just trying to get, we're just trying to cue safety to our body. Mm -hmm. As we do that and we're coming back into the window and as folks get a little bit more practiced in some of this work, um, I like to teach one that is a, is a favorite of mine that I, I talk about in the book is something called art. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, um, that stands for attune, respond intent. And the attune um, is really that listening. And, and the hope is though, that we begin to learn to listen before things are at a 10, you know, that there is a little bit more of like, um, you know, maybe it's like, okay, three times a day, I'm going to intentionally take a moment and do a body scan. So that's like picturing, I sometimes I'll describe this for folks like, Picturing a laser going from your top of your head to your toes. And as you do that, what sensations or emotions or feelings, any of those things, what's coming up for you? Hmm. So this is like a very basic way to just begin to, we're just trying to pay attention of what's going on. Mm -hmm. In this process, for a lot of folks, you might spend more time in a tuning than like you might not. You can go to the other ones, but it might be harder to do like it. We build on it. Um, but this next one is respond. And the with the respond 
I, this is again, where there's so many beautiful options, but sometimes this looks like practicing self-compassion because you're noticing that it was a really hard day and you messed up a few times and you feel some regret. And so practicing that self-compassion is a way to, you know, first of all, help us it communicates safety to our bodies by allowing us to say it's safe to feel that regret. It's okay. Like you can make amends, you can do what you need to do, but it's communicating that to our bodies in a way that sort of says like, I'm, you know, if it's, if it's the, sometimes I think about this in terms of like a, an older self and a younger self, if this Mm -hmm. younger self is like, Oh man, I failed again. I, you know, I'm, I'm so terrible that there's a sense in which we are kind of coming alongside that younger self. Um, Other options with that respond might be, you know, giving ourselves a chance to um, write out what we're feeling through things like journaling. It might be um, looking at physical movement as a way to say, you know, that thing made me really angry today. (laughs) This, you know, this thing that happened. Um, what does my body want to do in this moment? You know, maybe it's, you know, I need to shake my arms out and uh, push my arms against, or my hands against the wall, because Mm -hmm. when I think about the way this person talked to me, like it just brings up a lot of anger. Mm -hmm. And what I'm wanting to do is give my body permission to process some of that. So those are just some of some examples of like, okay, I'm responding to what my body's saying. And then the last one is tend. Tend, I sometimes think of, um, so I have two kiddos and a way that I sometimes describe this is so when, especially when my kids were younger, um, if I wanted to meet up with a friend and I was like with my kids, um, we might decide to meet at a park. And the reason that we would do this, like a playground is that I could let my kids go play and I could keep an eye on them, but like I could talk with my friend. Like we could, I could sort of like, I had an awareness of what was going on with my kids. Um, but it was like, I was also able to be present to some extent, you know, with my friend and to sort of uh, like, I'm not so absorbed in what's going on with my kids that I, I can't do this other thing. And I, and I like to think of tend a little bit like that because I mean, as we all know, we don't have, most people don't have hours a day to do lots of time of like, oh, you know, like I want to really listen to myself and I'm going to spend, you know, hours and hours doing that. Like, um, and ultimately that, you know, it just is not realistic for most Mm -hmm. people's lives because we have other things going on. And so what I love about this idea is that when we've done the work of attuning and doing what we can to respond, we can move towards tending. And we can do that because again, like, and I know not everyone has kiddos, but like when, if my kiddos needed a snack and I just told them to just be quiet and like never fed them, they would be very unhappy and they would be very loud and they would continue to tell me how hungry they were. And in many ways, our bodies are the same. Mm -hmm. When we have unmet needs, they don't go away because we just say, stop. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's good in many ways. And so as we meet the needs, they are like, thank you. (laughs) Like I feel validated. I feel heard. I can 
sort of, I don't need to be the main center of attention because I've been, I've been validated. Mm -hmm. And so that tending is more that perspective of, yeah, like this is, this is a part of myself, or this is a, a part of my experience that at times needs my attention. But as I honor it, as I work with it, I am available as I honor my work. Now I can, yes, I don't ever let go of, of my internal work, but I don't need to be quite so on it all the time. And I can open up to other people, other experiences, Mm -hmm. knowing that, yep. Oh, okay. You know, like, oh, this need, I need to do something with that. And as I do it, it settles down. I'm like, great. Now I can also go back to this other thing that's important to me. So I think of this, like, you know, it's, it's something that in more intense seasons of our lives, we may have to do, it might look a little differently. We might be spending more time in the response than the tend. And at other times we might be spending more times just tending Mm -hmm. and, and, and all of that is good and part of the work. I want to turn for a minute now and talk about women in academic and professional contexts and how they can use this book. And I think there's so much of what you said already that is really helpful for ourselves as um, people work with students and young people. But there's one particular question I wanted to ask you. So we're in this semi-post-pandemic world, and something we hear a lot is that professors are hoping to encourage students to learn, and they want to challenge students to take risks and work hard, but they're finding that some students are having difficulty managing their own emotional and mental health, Mm -hmm. And then that causes their coursework to suffer. And we hear stories of faculty who aren't sure how to engage students at this point. And, you know, do we push them? Do we, you know, give flexibility? And, you know, most faculty aren't trained in knowing how to care for students in tough times while also inspiring them to work hard. So what advice do you have for professors in this kind of tricky situation? Yeah, no, this is this is a great question and probably not one I can answer perfectly because I can think of so many different ways that it can go. But I think one place that always is always a good place to start is to, like we talked about earlier in the conversation is that we can acknowledge. And I hope that professors are able to acknowledge, like it has been a uniquely intense time in the world. And I don't think we do anyone any favors by wanting to pretend Mm -hmm. that that hasn't been the case. And, and not to say that people that, that folks are asking of that, but I think that we start there because if we don't start with something like that in a solid way, I think anything that gets built on that feels a little bit like, I don't know, it doesn't acknowledge the fullness of, of, of what might be impacting folks. And so I think certainly that matters and ways to begin, you know, I think getting creative about even as you start your courses, are there ways to incorporate um, the acknowledgement of, of like, of what that's been like Mm -hmm. um, for students, I think goes a long way in honoring um, people, because the other reality is that 
people haven't experienced it all the same way. Like some people have been hit harder. Some people have experienced more loss, more grief, more financial issues. And all of those, I mean, looking at it from the lens of this whole conversation, that all impacts our ability to show up well, especially in places that really require our full brain. Um, so I think honoring that in and of itself is, is worthy, um, and and helpful. I think also taking an honest look at your own syllabi and just saying like, given what I want students to learn and given all these different things, um, and in light of what we've experienced these last five years, how do those two things meet? Hmm how in my own conscience and what I know, um, what would I say to someone who I know has experienced incredible loss, incredible hardship. And, and these are the requirements. Like, Mm -hmm. what does that look like to not to just fold, not to say, no, there's no work here, but what does it look like for those to, um, almost like inform each other rather than trying to be like, oh, this exists in its own container. Yeah. Um, and then I think, you know, doing what you can as a, as a professor or someone who works in academia to take care of yourself and looking at, um, because again, the love your neighbor as yourself is rooted in our own capacity to listen. And so I do think there are so many different decisions that I think folks are probably having to make Mm -hmm. that it requires a lot of wisdom. I'm sure. Yeah. To figure out how do I, how do I navigate this and where, um, where do I be more firm versus where do I say, you know what? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Mm -hmm. here's what might be possible in terms of, uh, you know, making it up or, you know, different options in that respect. And I think when you, again, are doing your own work to the extent that you can, we have access to that deeper sense of wisdom. Andi closes her book with a benediction for the reader, and it includes this beautiful blessing. May you internalize in your very flesh and bones the kind gaze of the incarnational God who fashioned you, loves you, and calls you beloved. This is our prayer for you too. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and I encourage you to check out Andy's book. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll hear a bonus from our podcast where Andy talks with us about the difference between numbing and self-care. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Andi.
So numbing, actually, I would think of as a type of situational strength. Um, I think numbing is a response to trying to soothe pain, um, but not feeling as though you have what you actually need to move through the pain. And so, and I think that, um, again, like there is, there is a certain wisdom to that. Like, you know, for folks who experience, have experienced traumatic moments, you know, experiences, um, sometimes that's the best that they had available their body. Maybe that's actually a function of our, our dorsal vagal, which is that lower side. It's, it's usually a form of a dissociation and that can be a less intense dissociation all the way to, again, like a, a more significant. Um, and so I would say that's an offshoot. Numbing is an offshoot of that. It's a desire to, um, create an experience to activate an experience of dissociation because that moment feels too much. So I would say, you know, when we can lovingly compassionately turn towards that, that like, Oh, then there is a desire to numb. And at the pace we're able to say, well, I wonder why, <laughs> what's that about? You know, sometimes we might know, like we might know because, oh, the world feels like too much. There's too much on my plate. People want too much from me. Um, I don't feel like I have the support I need. Like things, things like that. Um, and then as we compassionately listen to that, the work is to tap into, like in some examples, it might be like, well, maybe part of what I need to do is be able to let go of some of, to say no, to, to, to be, to be more tenacious about, um, I can't, I am literally not able to do all these things. So I have to maybe set more boundaries or I might have to, um, ask for help in some ways that I have not felt like I could. Um, because all of these are, the question becomes becoming aware that I'm numbing and then why am I numbing? And what would make me feel safe enough so I don't have to be numb? And so that, so yeah, I would say that experience is definitely different than when we talk about self-care, you know, ideally self-care is about allow things that allow us to be in that window. They are things that communicate safety to our bodies. And that is typically different than things that make us feel less like ourselves. 